Imagine you're Freddie Mercury or Brian May or John Deacon or Roger Taylor, just one of the Queen guys. Imagine you are a member of Queen. It's 1975. You've just taken a break in Hawaii for a week on the beach, maybe some drinks, trying to forget about the madness with your contracts on the business side of things. You've gone to Japan and it was like Beatlemania when you were there. They loved you, overwhelmingly loved you, followed you everywhere. You had to go through kitchen elevators and such just to stay away from the masses, but they loved you. They loved you so much. The crowds were so enthusiastic at the performances that you had to calm people down so they didn't smash each other in the audience. But they loved you. They showered you with gifts. It was amazing. It was this experience that you're never going to forget. You get back home to the UK and you're deflated. You're defeated. Because Trident Productions still has a hold of you. And things are not going well. You've released three albums and you're broke. You're hoping for some assistance with something, a little bit more money in the bank. You don't get it. You want a piano. You don't get it. You want a little down payment for a house because you just got married. You don't get it. You want a car, any car. You don't get it. Jim Beach steps in. Young lawyer in the music industry steps in. He's got your back. He's going to try to help you out of this contract madness. And you get a new manager, John Reed, Elton John's manager. And he tells you, as crazy as things are, as hopeless as it seems, don't worry about the rest of this. Just go make the best album you can make. Period. What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You hunker down far away from the city for a while, Ridge Farm to be exact. You rehearse, you play, you write. Then you go into seven different studios, do some amazing stuff, and you create an album that is not only the best you've done, it will become one of the defining musical moments of the era and beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, a night at the opera. (laughs) That was my best Kenny Everett impression. We'll talk more about that later, but this is the kickoff for the album that is so big I don't even know why I'm doing this this album at all. I don't know why I'm talking about it because it's been so analyzed and loved and picked apart and discussed already. I'm debating doing a queen deep dive for Bohemian Rhapsody and just literally saying like five words and leaving it at that because what else is there to say? But I'll tell you what, there's always something more to talk about. I took my time as I thought about this album. I listened to it several times again. I read a lot about it. I went back into my lovely book, Queen, as it began. 
wanted to get my head around absolutely every single piece of information I could get my hands on for this. And here we are, A Night at the Opera, Queen's fourth album and the pinnacle, many would say. I guess when it comes to innovation and elegance, this is certainly at the top. So let's dive right in to A Night at the Opera. Everything that I opened this with actually happened. The guys did go off to Hawaii for a break. They went to Japan and it was amazing and they had this experience that was marvelous and then they had to go home and it was all depression and what are we going to do and this is do or die. This is make it or break it time and they all knew that. They all knew that if something didn't change, that was it. That was going to be the end of Queen. But that was not the case. Thankfully, oh my goodness, because this is the fabulous Night at the Opera, released on November 21st of 1975. It was recorded from August through November of 75. November of 75. Do you guys get what I'm saying? They were working on this album into the 11th hour to the last minute. And it's a good thing. It was number one. Number one in the UK, number four in the US, and it topped many other countries' charts as well. My goodness, there's a lot of stuff out there about this album, a lot of quotes, a lot of comments from the boys. Freddie said, quote, I did discipline myself take vocals because they're my forte, especially harmonies and those kind of things. On Queen 2, we've gone berserk. But on this album, I consciously restricted myself. That's brought the songwriting side of it across. And I think those are some of the strongest songs we've ever written, unquote. Well stated, Freddie, and very insightful. In 1990, Brian said... For a night at the opera, we sort of returned to the Queen 2 philosophy. We had our confidence because we had a hit. We had a kind of almost desperation about us, too, because we were totally bankrupt at that point. You know, we had made hit records, but we hadn't had any of the money back. And if a night at the opera hadn't been a huge success, I think we would have just disappeared under the ocean someplace. So we were making this album knowing it was live or die. Each of us individually wanted to realize our potential as writers and producers and everything. Speaks volumes that these guys openly state how much they knew this had to be an awesome record. Not just over the top, not just shock and awe, not just loud rock and roll, but it had to be refined, composed, elegant, strategic, well-produced, all of those things, thoughtful, imaginative, experimental, expansive. It had to be all of those things. And I'm sure they knew they were capable of that. But how do you realize that? How do you do it? You add a little bit of camp in there too. In fact, I found this great quote in response to a Perth interview in 76 about the album and the act in general being 
a little bit camp, thanks to fabulous Freddie, Roger said, it's not really camp, it's rock and roll. And it's very visual as well. There's a lot of rock and roll music there, unquote. This was in direct response to the interviewer asking about the campiness of everything. And the guys were very protective of their vibe and their music and their personality as a band. And they became more and more disenchanted, frustrated, and I think even disgusted with the press. And by this time, they were quick to admit how seldom they read reviews or even cared about them. And Roger was always the most vocal about that. I I can think of at least five interviews I've listened to right off the bat where he specifically said, no, we're not really fond of the music press. (laughs) But it's because the, the, the press were always poking them. Well, what does this mean? In fact, in that same interview in Perth, the interviewer was asking Freddie about the lyrics like Beelzebub and such and and asking if Freddie steady demonology. And it's like, Freddie just goes, no, I just love the word (laughs) Beelzebub. And we'll talk about that more, of course, as we dive into that marvelous number. But needless to say, the guys were at this point pretty much ignoring what was going on in the press and just focusing on what they knew they could do and what they had to do to make this work. When opera was released... Formal UK magazine reviews weren't even possible because the guys were literally mixing the album right up until the very last moment. But a man who attended the playback party, Ray Fox Cumming, commented on the album's amazing rush of music and dazzling vocally created orchestral effects. Now, Bohemian Rhapsody, which will be referred to as Bo Rap <laughs> for convenience here, would go on to become Queen's first number one record in the UK for no less than nine weeks and earned the band high ranks from plenty of publications and magazines, including New Musical Express, NME, Record Mirror, and Disc for Queen's catchy single, You're My Best Friend, from this album. Sounds wrote... It'll be an absolute smash, beautiful harmonies, strident guitar chords, and Freddie in superb voice. Instant number one. Now, sadly, that song never rose higher than number seven, but we love it anyway, of course. So though initial reviews for the album in its entirety were scarce, the media quickly jumped on the album as it climbed the charts very quickly. And in that time, Melody Maker wrote... The overall impression is of musical range, power, and consistently incisive lyrics. My hair is still standing on end. So if you like good music and don't mind looking silly, play this album. There are far too many critics' comments to summarize, but I snagged this one, which I love most. I was trying to find one that spoke to what I think about this album and what I think the general consensus is, and here it is. Quote, more than anything else, A Night at the Opera is a consolidation of the previous album's success, skillfully balancing artistry and effectology. What a great word. Throughout the album, they display their individual songwriting abilities and musicianship to devastating effect. If it's the most expensive album ever made in a British studio, 
it's also arguably the best. God save them, unquote. That gem is from Tony Stewart of NME. I love what he said, and I totally agree. Overall, critics appreciated the band's grandiose and boundless creativity displayed throughout the album and commented on the guy's limitless talents on full remarkable display. So after its release, A Night at the Opera received Grammy Award nominations for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo, Group, or Chorus, and Best Arrangement for Voices. More recently, in 2020, Rolling Stone ranked it at number 128 on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And in 2018, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. And according to acclaimed music, it is the 147th most celebrated album in popular music history. Wow. I want to talk a little bit about Rolling Stone's rankings, especially their more recent rankings. So Rolling Stone historically was not very friendly to Queen on many occasions. They were very critical of Queen. And I think a lot of a lot of music press were. They saw Queen as this arrogant, overly flashy, overproduced, overhyped act. And I think a lot of these critics flat out missed the point of the band, which was the enthusiasm, the celebration of rock and roll, the celebration of life, the celebration of joy, the in-person live performances that were so amazing. And I think that's where the guys shined the best. I just think the press missed the mark very often when it came to the guys. They didn't give them a fair chance. Or if they did, they quickly backtracked and found something to criticize, often unfairly. So you can tell that my opinion of a lot of the opinions of the press is very similar to the guys, which is, you know what? This is music. This is creativity. This is expression. It doesn't have to be written in stone. There are no rules. There are no boundaries because if you tell us there are, we're going to cross them. We're going to break them and we're going to bust through the ceiling. And that's exactly what the guys did not just on this album, but in general. There is so much to say about this album. I'm not even halfway there. Oh my goodness. So during the craziness of transitioning under John Reed's management, as Jim Beach helped the guys get out of their deals with Trident at a very great cost, by the way, because the guys had a whole US tour planned in the first half of 75, and it was scrapped. That was going to be an essential tour because it could have been a huge moneymaker. But the whole thing was completely dissolved because of what happened with Trident. The guys were able to retain ownership of their work. They kept their music, but they had to agree to pay Trident royalties for, I forget the exact number of albums going forward, but it was an extensive number of releases going forward. So they were free from Trident, but not completely rid of them at this point. This would go on to remain in the back of their minds for quite some time. So the guys are completely deflated from this. They finally transitioned to working with John Reed as their manager. There were tons of rumors circulating in the press that Queen were on the verge of breaking up. 
I can't imagine being in that position. None of that is true, of course. The guys were never at any point thinking, oh gosh, maybe we should just quit. I mean, look at what they went through. This is 1975. Smile, which of course preceded Queen with Brian and Roger and of course Tim Staffel. I mean, Brian and Roger fought for that for years. Freddie came in, they finally auditioned a bunch of bassists and got John. And then here they have Queen and they've been pushing and pushing and pushing and writing and recording and touring for so long. Are they really going to quit at this point? I mean, they're just on the rise and I think they knew that. So getting everything in place from a business standpoint was of essential importance, of course. But there's all these rumors going around the Queen is on the rocks, When that happened, there was a band called Sparks that was very popular at the time. It was two brothers, Russ and Ron Mayle, and they actually approached Brian to steal him away. They said, Queen are all washed up. Come and conquer the world with us. Brian, while flattered, stuck with Queen. Thank goodness. (laughs) I mean, yeah. The guys were so devoted to each other. And I think Brian, of all people, I mean, the rest of the guys waited for him when he was recovering from his awful stints in the hospital. I mean, why wouldn't he stick around with Queen? They're all best friends at this point. You know, you can't imagine them ever abandoning each other completely. The guys recorded at no less than seven studios to complete a night at the opera. After spending the summer months at Ridge Farm, which would become Ridge Farm Studios, there are so many fun pictures from that time. I've seen them circulating all over the place on social media, the guys hanging out playing tennis. There's some really rare shots that have just surfaced recently of the guys swimming. So many gems out there that I love to see because it's not just about the music. You get to see them kind of in their element, just hanging out, just having a good time, just being friends. There is a particularly lovable shot of Freddie standing in a field and he, he looks fabulous. His hair is perfect. He's got this, I think this white t-shirt on. He's got his bangles on his wrist as always. He looks all perfectly in vogue. And then Right behind him, peeking out from behind his shoulders, is Roger with a swimming mask on, completely soaked, but all you see is part of his face. And it is one of the cutest moments I've ever seen of any of them in a photo. I, I, I love it. And I almost wish, as much as I love seeing it, because those moments must be pretty intimate, personal moments, just on a friendship level. I almost wish that we weren't seeing all those things. I'm a little bit selfish because I love to see it, but yeah, I I have this sentiment about those kinds of photos because I don't share a lot of photos like that myself. So I can't imagine what it's like for these guys, you know, Brian, Roger, and, and John, if he does look at these things online to see these shots that were taken personally between them as buddies. And then they're kind of out there for the world to see. And we all love it. But what does that feel like on a personal level? Is it invasive? I don't know. (laughs) That's just the kind of stuff that I think about. But I do love those photo shoots from that time. I absolutely love to see those moments. When it came to actually producing this album, Freddie passed higher vocal harmonies to Roger more often after he was diagnosed with vocal nodules, which they realized when they were right in the middle of touring for Sheer Heart Attack. These vocal nodules would stay with him for the rest of his life, and they affected his voice to a certain extent. And I I think knowing that and being very 
very leery of that, he was more willing to, to pass some of those harmonies off to Roger. Not that he didn't before, but I think this started happening more often with the album. The album is also the first to prominently feature the Queen Crest, which combines the zodiac signs of all four members. Did you guys know that? It's not just a spin on the royal crest of the Queen or anything like that. It actually has... Two lions for Leo, which are John Deacon and Roger Taylor. A crab for Cancer, which is Brian. And two fairies for Virgo, which of course is Mr. Freddie Mercury. So genius, so beautiful. One of my favorite covers because it's all white. And then we have the beautiful colored crest. For the first time, we get the crest in full color. In late 75, when it came time to pick their first single, and the guys pitched Bo Rap to their new manager, John Reed. He resisted, saying it simply wasn't feasible. And as a long piece, no one would play it. But the band insisted it to be released just as it was, without any edits, which were attempted, and they were horrible. I mean, edits that took out the whole operatic section. Edits that cut down the guitar solo. What are you thinking? Those are trademarks of the song. Of course, we know that now. But at the time, a lot of songs that were longer on the radio simply didn't get airtime. Nobody played them because the assumption was nobody would listen to it. To combat the sentiment that this was not a good song to release as a first single, Freddie gave his close friend, DJ Kenny Everett, a copy of Bo Rap before it was actually released. Kenny loved it so much he played it 14 times in two days on his show. And Freddie loved Kenny's presentation and style so much that he recruited him to record an introduction to the album, A Night at the Opera, which the guys would use and play it at the beginning of every show on the tour. So when I started this with, ladies and gentlemen, A Night at the Opera, that's exactly what Kenny said. And that's exactly what the guys used to open their set list. At the time, A Night at the Opera was the most expensive album ever made. It was about 40,000 pounds, which is about 340,000 pounds in 2021. Norman Sheffield of Trident. So after the listening party, Norman heard Death on Two Legs, dedicated to, it's the first song on A Night at the Opera, and he saw red. He saw red because even though Queen never specifically mentioned Norman or Trident by name in the song or otherwise, Norman thought the song was alluding to him and the way that Trident treated Queen, which was not good. We'll talk about the song Death on Two Legs dedicated to in more detail, but essentially it is a hate letter to someone who has taken total advantage of Freddie and the guys. So even though Queen never specifically say Norman or Trident in this song or reference to it, EMI agreed to pay Sheffield a sum to avoid further issue here. And it worked but to have this little bit of nastiness and tension floating around in the background amongst this album's release, I'm sure that was a little bit stressful. In order to properly promote Bo Rap while the band embarked on their UK tour, they hastily 
but of course, successfully, totally, monumentally successfully filmed their first promotional video in Elstree Studios on November 10th while they were rehearsing. They filmed it in four hours for about 4,500 pounds, and it was edited in a day. And voila, we have the first real music video. It's amazing to think that this video was done simply out of a need to promote the single. And it essentially gave birth to MTV and everything we have after it. I don't even think the guys were that keen on having a video promote the song because they were about playing it live. They always liked to play live. It was always about the music. And at least several of them were always adamant that the music was the most important thing. But because of the videos, the music tended to take this back seat or people's sentiment around the songs were manipulated because of the imagery they saw. And I can agree to that. Sometimes, have you ever listened to a song like a bunch of times and then you watch the music video and the video completely changes your opinion about the song for good or for worse? Have you ever had that experience? I have. And sometimes I wish, dang it, I, I, I wish I hadn't viewed the video because it changes your feeling around the song. It really does. So sometimes when someone comes out with a new song, I specifically don't watch the video because I want to experience the audio. It's true. Videos have almost taken more importance over the audio. It's kind of sad, but it's true. And I think the guys knew that even with this promo, this promotional video they made. I mean, it, it did wonders and it worked and it's still amazing and people love it. And it was very quickly done, very cleverly done. Did you guys know that the video was created? Well, okay. <laughs> I don't want to go into too much detail about just Bohemian Rhapsody. This is about A Night at the Opera. So we'll talk about that later. But it's just amazing to me that that video created this whole new genre of expression in music. Oh, oh, oh. And of course, the guys were all fans of the Marx Brothers if that wasn't obvious. So <laughs> we have A Night at the Opera, which is a perfect, perfect summary of what this album is. Because while the previous album saw the boys become queen as we know them in sound, A Night at the Opera sees the band further refine, experiment, and improve production techniques, which results in this epic rock album that many call one of the greatest ever. Progressive rock, pop, classical, heavy metal, avant pop, avant-garde. This album has just about everything. Going from a 16-track to 24-track tape in the studio certainly enhanced their sound, giving them ample audio room to further layer instruments and voices. Brian talks about that in interviews about the layering on this album that because they took the same approach as Queen 2, though it has the diversity of sheer heart attack, A Night at the Opera is so layered and rich with experimentation and sound. Brian took his guitar sounds to a whole new level, specifically, all while maintaining the band's commitment to no synthesizers. Roger expanded his drum kit, adding a massive gong, which no doubt means studio arrangements, and recording were also more elaborate, not just the live performances. Freddie's singing and piano playing, as always, diverse from very loud and raucous to refined and sensitive, is even more impressive and expressive. And John gives us double bass and 
Wurlitzer electric piano, in addition to his fabulous bass lines. There's so much more. Harp and toy Kodo, courtesy of Brian. Timpani from Roger. Jangle piano from Freddie. Their love for different sounds and styles to create something entirely unique shines better and brighter than ever here. And it's never overproduced, overwhelming, or overly indulgent. Everything feels like it's supposed to be here. Perfectly beautiful and playful and composed. Thanks in large part to Freddie's absolutely stunning and mysterious bow rap. This album intrigued and impressed so much that dates were added to the U.S. tour and records were selling out throughout the USA. It was such a sonic explosion that all four of Queen's albums were in the top 20 in the UK in early 76. That's a feat no one expected. Except maybe the boys. And that's amazing. The innovation, creativity, and no no bounds approach the guys took throughout this album makes it a masterpiece. The boys' approach to real life Yes, this is the real life. (laughs) As opposed to just the fantastical surrealism of earlier albums makes A Night at the Opera a more worldly and mature piece. All of the innovation, the glam, the elegance, the rock and roll, it's realized more than ever. Now me, my opinion on this album has shifted as I've listened to all of their works over and over read comments and sentiment and thought about how the album impacted the world at its release, in addition to its enduring legacy, I gotta admit that when I first listened to Queen's entire catalog, this was not an album that sat near the top for me. Now, context, none of their albums are bad, in my opinion. I can hardly rank them because I appreciate them so much. But this wasn't one that I particularly cared for as an absolute favorite. That, that loveliness goes to maybe Queen 2. I love Queen 2 because I love, I love the way they overindulged on it. I actually prefer the overindulgence of rock and roll and overproduction on Queen 2. But here, as I was listening to the album for the millionth time the other day, and I was taking in the production of it and the composition and the creativity, I thought, you know, it really is true that this is because it was born out of this desperation to prove that they had the staying power and to prove how awesome they were There is a certain elegance and refinement and honesty and heart to this that I think begins to fade with later albums. So even though I really love some of their albums that we have yet to talk about, more than this one, this might be the last time we have real genuine heart in an album from Queen. And that's not to say it doesn't pop up here and there and it's not obvious or evident on some albums as well. But I think because the guys hit the big time with this massively, were household names, they were everywhere, big all over the world, etc. I think there's only so much of that you can take before you begin to get a little bit puffed up with yourself. Doesn't mean I hate the guys for that by any means. It just means that when they make music going forward, there's a certain indulgence in it that I think it's a little bit less heart. I don't know how else to explain it, but somebody wrote that in a review and I very much agree with it, that 
I don't know. There's just a genuine honesty and a transparency here on an emotional level that doesn't feel forced or overly expressive or shock and awe or any of those things. It's not done just to show how awesome they are. There's there's so much composure here. And I really appreciate that about A Night at the Opera. Now, as I was going through this album too, I decided that I want to start giving an album to, to one of the guys every single time. And let me explain what I mean. Yes, all of the boys are phenomenal when they're doing their albums, but I, I want to pick one person who I think, and this is going to be a very personal decision and a very biased one, but I want to pick a guy, hopefully a different one every time. Hopefully it's varied. I'm not going to intend to do that, but hopefully as we go through all the albums, I will be picking this guy and then that guy, etc. But I want to pick one of the guys that I think shines the most on the album. And I think... I want to give a night at the opera, even though, yes, it has Bohemian Rhapsody, which is Freddie's masterpiece. I want to give this whole album as a whole to Brian May, to Dr. Brian May. And let me explain why. He does things on his guitar here that transcend everything else that we'll ever hear from him. Yes, he's got some extremely complex and complicated solos that we're going to hear in future albums, but I think just the innovation of his work here we have, I mean, he plays acoustic guitar. We have him creating an entire Dixieland band in good company. I mean, he does ridiculous things. He plays harp on this album. It just, I am so impressed with Brian on A Night at the Opera, his overall performance. And yes, I went back and I did this for the other albums we've talked about, but I want to talk about that in a separate episode completely because I think it's worth elaborating a little bit more. I wish I'd done it earlier, but I just thought about it. I thought, you know, I want to I want to pick a guy and just give the album to them. And I think I'm going to give Brian a night at the opera, which I realize, yeah, maybe that's controversial again. Bohemian Rhapsody. But I, I think even though Bohemian Rhapsody is this huge standout piece, and even though it's magnificent, I'm looking at the whole performance from each of the guys. And I just think that this album is Brian's. I, I just, I feel after listening to the album several times through the last few days that this is Brian's album. It's, it's one of his best performances. And, and, and I'm truly impressed with everything all the guys do. But here, a lot of what Brian's doing stands out to me. We have his song, The Prophet Song, which of course is this very progressive rock experimental piece. And it's very elaborate. Lots of vocal harmonies that are done primarily by Freddie, but all of the arrangement and production of that song and the writing of it is so impressive coming from Brian. So yes, I think Brian takes A Night at the Opera. And this album has, I, I realize it's going to sound weird for me to say this, but it's grown on me because again, it wasn't one that immediately jumped out at me as this amazing thing because I suppose it's, it's already known how great it is. I was discovering the whole of all the other albums in a different kind of way because A Night at the Opera is so well known. But when I think about this in the context of their releases and what, what people must have thought and the experience they got from this album when it came out in the first place and the way it's been alluded to so many times and the influence it's had on so many people, I have a greater respect and appreciation for this album because of all those things. 
And this was the first album when the guys toured where they started working with their tour manager, Jerry Stickles, who was with them through years and years and years and years. And I think he actually just recently passed away. I think it might've been last year, but he was this incredible force for the guys, did a lot of great work. And if I remember right, and some of the stuff I've read, he could be quite a threatening guy <laughs> if you didn't know him well. I think that was Jerry Stickles. But a lot of great things written about Jerry over the years from the guys and how much they appreciated his work. And, and so you had this massive team coming together. You had Jim Beach, you had John Reed, and you had Jerry Stickles, and you had the boys. And they became this massive entertainment force in the music world, all starting with this album. And it's all up from here. But that is a night at the opera. And I'm so excited to go into the songs. I'm intimidated just getting into these albums that are so popular. It's intimidating. It's scary to think about talking about them, but we're going to do it. We're going to go through every single one, every single Queen Deep Dive, and we're not going to stop till we're all done. I still haven't decided if I want to do B-sides. I really want to throw a few in there at least the ones I really love, but I don't know. I don't know. I have to think about it. I realize this is my podcast and I can do what I want, but I kind of have these formulas I want to stick to. But that is finally my big fangirling craziness for A Night at the Opera. And I will be back next time. I knew it. I knew this, I knew this episode was going to go on for a while. I'm excited because it's a lot to cover and there's still so much more. I feel like there's a million things I missed. <laughs> so... I'll talk to you guys again. You guys know it. Here it comes. Keep yourselves alive.